Welcome to today's edition of the Insights Podcast on the Huddle Network. I'm Don Mills. And I'm David Campbell. This is part two of our conversation with Steve Murphy. Uh, David, just to, uh, we had we had so much to talk about, we just couldn't uh, we couldn't cut it off at our normal length. So we decided let's double our pre- our pleasure. <laughs> That's right. And now getting to hear it at Christmas time, it's a double benefit because you can take a time off and uh, have some eggnog and listen to S- Steve Murphy make observations that you will not have heard. Uh, otherwise, because he is a very professional journalist and uh, his opinions he's kept to himself, but he shares a lot uh, with us in this podcast. And there's no doubt that if you listen to these podcasts, you're going to know a lot more about Steve Murphy than you did before the podcast. So here's part two of our conversation with Steve Murphy. Steve, we wanted to ask you to list a few, one or two or three of, you know, you've, inter- you've interviewed thousands of people, but are there one or two or three that really stand out that you'd like to share with the listeners today? Well, I'll tell you, uh, Dave, I, I get asked that question a bit and I didn't used to have a good answer for it. So I decided that I should really reflect on it and, and try to come up with a good answer. And you're right. I've been very fortunate for a, you know, a small town guy to, to get a lot of really great interviews with uh, world profile individuals. But the interview that I think I will never forget was the interview I did, and I think it's about 15, it might be almost 20 years ago now, with uh, the late Philip Reitman uh, from the Halifax area, who was a survivor of Auschwitz and who had lived, um, I think, most of his life. And by this time, he would have been a a man, I, I think, well into his 70s. And he'd never really spoken of it. And he decided, and I'm not sure exactly why, that he wanted to begin to tell the story of what he'd experienced, what he'd seen um, when he was there. And we had him on our broadcast on a Remembrance Day. And I think it was about the first time Mr. Reitman had spoken, at least perhaps in a long form, because I think we did about 10 or 12 minutes with him. And he spoke with such uh, courage and dignity, uh, just raw, raw emotion, but with incredible strength about the horror that he witnessed, the horror that he lived. And I, uh, I'll be honest with you, I, I remember being almost unable to form a question. So profound were his answers and his statements. And he went on to spend the rest of his life educating particularly school children about that horror. And I think uh, really that is an interview that towers above all others because he was an extraordinary individual. He'd had a, a, an unspeakable experience. He'd experienced it. He'd witnessed it. He'd had a, a terrible loss of life. His own family uh, was lost. And yet he had the courage to stand up and tell the story and to tell it with such dignity. Uh, Really, that to me was a towering example of humanity. And I guess he he really is the sort of person who I will never forget. Uh, And there are a lot of other interviews, but uh, really nobody quite comes up to that level. There were many other outstanding individuals, don't get me wrong, but I don't think anything, I don't think anyone could really touch him in that respect. God, God rest his soul. He was an amazing man. Uh, 
just wanted to change topics again, Steve. Uh, we got a lot of questions. You know, I think this is going to be a two-parter because there's so many <laughs> questions that we, we have to get through here, which is great. Uh, uh, media has been subjective to a lot of criticism in recent years, obviously, yep. and has lost some credibility as a reliable source of information for many in our society. In your opinion, what can or should media do be doing to regain its credibility as a reliable source of information? Yeah, that, that, that's a good question, Don. It's an existential question, really, for people in my business. I, I want to begin, though, by just uh, maybe qualifying the premise a little bit and saying that there are some media organizations, some news organizations, that they get called the mainstream, the traditional. Look, I call them the demonstrated or proven or reliable media. Uh, news organizations that have not really strayed from what I consider to be the essentials, which are accuracy, fairness, balance, and the clear separation of the news reporting from the editorialization that goes on. Commentary is valuable, but commentary should not be blended with news reporting. And there should be a very, very concerted effort. In fact, in Canada, the Broadcast Standards Council does require that we clearly separate news commentary from news reporting. I commend them for that. I, I think our friends in the United States would do well to consider doing something like that because so confused now are viewers about where the reporting ends and the commenting begins. And in fact, I'm not even sure that the presenters try to make any distinction anymore. And I believe therein lies most of the problem. There's nothing wrong with, with journalists having opinions. This idea that journalists are not supposed to have opinions is, is not true. Journalists are not supposed to allow their opinions to shape their coverage of news events. You know, the news is supposed to be accurate, first and foremost, fair and balanced. And it's not supposed to come from a point of view. Now, having said that, we all have a point of view and it's folly to pretend we don't. But the challenge for the journalist in reporting news is to leave the point of view at the door and to let the editing of the facts be the determinant of the content, not the opinion. So, you know, commentary is fine so long as it is disclaimed and presented as commentary. And that is what is really not happening in many media platforms today. I watch some of the American 24-hour uh, news channels and frankly, the news report turns into a commentary or an editorial. And there's, it's, it's seamless. And it's no wonder the viewers are confused and many of them are angry. And many viewers of news programs and many readers and listeners do believe that facts are being conflated with opinions because they are. So my advice to journalism is stop. Don't conflate the two. Do the two. I have no problem whatsoever with expressing an opinion. In fact, I, I did an editorial. I haven't done many in recent years. I did an editorial on, on Remembrance Day, uh, which we clearly indicated was an editorial. It's not, it's not a news report. And I think the public, public needs to know that we know the difference. I, and, and I'm not even sure that all journalism today is concerned about the difference, but I am. And you know, the other thing is we need rigorous editing, Don. Uh, in a world where anybody can publish, some media organizations, some news organizations need to be heavily edited by people who are worried about the facts. And uh, again, I, I'm, I'm the last person to oppose podcasts, what has been called citizen journalism. All of the social media platforms are fine. They are not edited journalism, which is 
you know, material that is collected by professionals, edited by people who are concerned about accuracy, fairness, and balance, and then published by people who will be responsible for what is said. And this is the other thing that's missing. You know, in, in this country and in this industry in which I've spent my whole life, if you have a problem with something I said, you know who I am, you know where I work, you know who I work for. If you are unhappy with what I say or do, you can take any number of actions against me and I will be held accountable for them. That can include up to uh, taking us to court and suing us. And, and good journalism should not be afraid of any of that. But we need to be wholly accountable for what we say. And that means there has to be far less uh, anonymity uh, in all platforms. I remember back when I used to do talk radio, I used to get stacks and stacks of letters. Remember letters? And I had a policy that if you didn't sign the letter, I didn't read it. Because if you won't tell me who you are, I'm not going to listen to what you say. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. By the way, we do need to protect whistleblowers who are confidential sources. They need to be able to, to speak with complete freedom and then let us determine whether we can take a chance on what they're saying and validate it and report it. That's not the kind of anonymity I'm talking about. I'm talking about anonymity of authorship and anonymity of publisher. If you won't tell us who you are, I don't think we should be listening to you seriously. Consider what you say, sure. But is it is it journalism of the sort you see in the Globe and Mail on, on CBC's National News, on CTV National News? No, it is not. It is not the kind of journalism that people should feel comfortable trusting, in my opinion. I'm not sure. I think you're absolutely right. I'm not sure we're going to get there. That The blurred line between sort of hard news and editorial has been slipping forever. There's that story of Walter Concrete pulling off his glasses and making an editorial comment, you know, 40 or 50 years ago. And it yep. was such a rarity that it shocked everybody. But now on CNN every night, you know, the the, the, the anchors are making those kind of commentary. I mean, it, literally, it's it's become embedded in the show. Now, as you said, as long as you're clear about where those, you almost have to have like a red beeping, you know, this is just an opinion. Uh, right. But I think that's a, that is a, certainly a big challenge. Well, I, but it's more than just a challenge, really. I mean, I think we need to be clear on what is news and what is not news. Opinion is not news reporting. Opinion is opinion. It's commentary. It's editorial. It's very important. It's very valuable. But it's not news reporting. And, you know, there's a term that was used by President Trump, which I'm going to use once and once only in this conversation. Fake news. Well, news by nature can't be fake. News is accurate, fair, and balanced. If it's not that, it's not news. It's something else. It could be something masquerading as news, and that's what the term means the way he uses it. But the problem is it's now being misconstrued by people as news can just be made up facts. Look, made up facts aren't facts. And news reporting is supposed to be about facts that are accurate, that are fair, and that are balanced. And I think we need to recommit to that. Um, as, a, as a business, as an industry, uh, we're not really a profession, much as we like to masquerade as one, but we need to recommit to it. So related to that, uh, Steve, I wanted to ask you about the economics around your business, because we've seen, particularly in Atlantic Canada, steep decline in the GDP or the economic activity associated yeah. with uh, radio and television. There's been closure of, of, of various news outlets. There's been a lot of trimming. You know, the business still has to make money, uh, particularly right. your side of the business. So so um, why do you think we've seen such a decline here? There's been a decline nationally, but it's been a bit steeper here. 
Why do you yeah. think that has happened? Has it hurt our uh, our ability to communicate, to properly uh, communicate the news to people in Atlantic Canada? And even more broadly, are the stories from Atlantic Canada properly covered nationally as a result of this decline? Or do you think it's just sort of a natural sort of evolution in terms of your, your industry? Well, there's a lot there's a lot in that question, and it's all worth considering. I'm not sure exactly when we talk about the, the, the GDP uh, decline, what precisely it's measuring, whether it's, you know, production dollars or minutes or, or staff levels and on what platforms and so on. I'll make a couple of quick comments. The first is that it, despite what people uh, may believe, the audience for television news is still very strong. And um, the last time we had ratings, which during the pandemic, it's been hard to get broadcast ratings. But the last time we had ratings, uh, our six o'clock newscast was not only the highest rated newscast in the region, it was the highest rated television program in the region. So there still is a demand for the gathering point of news on CBC or Global or CTV. Um, are the numbers as big as they once were? No, they're not. Are they down by as much as primetime numbers? No, they're not. They, they, the news numbers have held up very, very well by comparison. We have had uh, numbers, uh, production numbers go down because we had a lot of uh, incentive programming being produced in the Maritimes through various uh, tax incentive programs and so on. Famously in Nova Scotia, the film and tax credit was significantly altered by Premier McNeil. Um, so we, we have lost production in that respect, but I, I'm not qualified to comment on the production side. Uh, I, I will also say on the business side of news, uh, I don't know. I don't know anything about the revenue side because it's not really my part of the business. I will say that it's getting more and more difficult to compete against a public broadcaster that is so heavily subsidized, particularly online. And I'm not going to sit here and dump on public broadcasting. By the way, this may surprise people. I hope it doesn't. Canada needs a public broadcaster, but I'm not sure that the public broadcaster necessarily is the public podcaster. I don't know that the public broadcaster has been uh, ordained to become the largest digital uh, platform in the country. I do know that the taxpayers are subsidizing cbc.ca to an extent that Global or CTV or the Chronicle Herald, Saltwire or, or uh, NBI, they could only dream about that level of subsidization. Um, I do think we need to have this discussion, not to tear down public broadcasting, but to make sure that we don't have a situation where only the public broadcaster is able to survive in a competitive news landscape, particularly online. And that's where we are now. There, there's a huge degree of subsidization for cbc.ca and almost nobody can compete with it because most of us have not been able, as I understand it, to monetize these digital platforms to the degree that is necessary to make them uh, survive. We have a very good digital platform at CTV Atlantic but it's, it's subsidized on the back of, of advertising revenue from television. Uh, we continue to see that television revenue is, is, is changing, and, 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 but the key is to move it to another platform. But that's not an even field at the moment. It's not a level playing field over there. So it's going to be very, very hard to do that. Are we losing stories as a result of it? Well, maybe. But I would like to say in defense of private broadcasting, when the pandemic started, uh, the public broadcaster opted to do less local. We opted to do more. And I'll just let the record speak for itself on that. Uh, I think it was a lamentable decision for any broadcaster, public or private, to decide that a pandemic was a good time to do less. Uh, I, I, I think that the, I think that the smart people over at public probably now regret that decision. But we actually decided that we would increase the amount of local 
coverage we were doing, particularly with the medical health officers and the premiers, because we felt that the public needed more information, not less. So I guess the, the short answer to the question, and I've taken a long time to get to it, is this. We're still doing a lot of local. We need to do even more because we are the only people who can do local. You can get national or international news in a thousand really great places. You can't get local, regional in too many places, and we need to continue to do it with the with the passion that we're we're still doing it, even if the resources are perhaps less than they once were. So the young, the young journalists carrying around their own cameras and their own equipment and doing their own editing and all that, you could still yep. get high quality stories with that in that type of environment. Well, I mean the, the quality the quality changes, David. That's a very good question. But let me say that you know. Which industry has been able to resist technology? Uh, I remember when I got into the radio business, the television crews had a cameraman, a reporter, and they had an audio, uh, an audio operator as well, and they had to go back and do lip sync and sync film with with audio. Yeah. Technology eventually does have its way with everything. It will have its way uh, with with news. But the key, the key, however, is is in the editing. And I come back to this point. You know, collecting the material, writing the material, collating the material is, is critical. Good editing, good critical eyes on the product is, is very, very important. It's what we're able to bring to the party, that Twitter will not be bringing this to the party. Facebook can barely control the people, you know, the, the multitude of, 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 of publishers on its platform. And I'm not suggesting, by the way, that they, that they will or, or even should, but we should. We should be good editors. We should be responsible for making sure that the facts are being properly, fairly presented. Uh, Steve, you have a well-deserved reputation as a mentor and uh, no doubt have mentored numerous young journalists over the course of your career. What advice do you give to these young journalists and, and, and any aspiring journalists who might be listening to this podcast? Yeah, I'm going to, be, I'm going to give you a simple one there, Don, and I thought about that. Um, just commit to the basics. Commit to getting the facts, getting them right. Commit to being fair. Commit to being balanced. Commit to being literate. Use the language properly. Be precise. Be persistent. Don't let people get away without answering your questions. And if they don't answer them, make sure that your audience knows they're not being answered. And present that in a way that is respectful. You know, uh, my dad used to say, uh, there's no question that you can't ask if you ask it the right way. And I believe that. And I think that's the duty of journalism and young journalists. But don't be afraid to answer. Uh, don't be afraid to ask questions. And by the way, we're often told, well, there are certain things that you're not allowed to ask. They're not going to talk about this subject or that subject. And my answer to our young people is always the same. They don't have to answer the question if they don't want to, but they shouldn't tell us not to ask it. Not too long ago, I uh, <clears throat> authored a, a column on who I considered the best premiers in this mm. region over my career. So, you know, I'm going to put you on the hot seat uh, okay. and ask you the same question, because I'm pretty sure you have interviewed every premier in Atlantic Canada over the last <laughs> 35 or yeah. 50, 60 years, whatever it is that you've been broadcasting. There, actually, <laughs> you and I talked about this once before. I think I've interviewed 45 premiers. Yeah, um, not just Atlantic Canadians, but mainly Atlantic Canadians. I'm going to exclude the incumbents because I'm still going to be doing journalism, and I, I oh think no, that, that's fine, that's fair. Yeah, yeah. so, so I'm, I'm going to start by saying one for each province, please. 
Well, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to <laughs> give you a little bit of a, a tough answer there because okay. uh, I mean I think Frank McKenna stands out uh, in recent history in Atlantic Canada for a number of reasons. Uh, he would probably tell you he was the right guy at the right time. I think that's that's true. I think that he he did a lot of things uh, in New Brunswick that have had some some permanence. I think you know really improving the the image of New Brunswickers to New Brunswickers was very significant. He also did a lot of infrastructure. The roads in New Brunswick are still quite a bit better than they were when I was a kid. I give McKenna credit for that. But I also like, I like, and I used to say this, um, and I, I still believe it, we need more big dreamers. We need more people who are willing to dream the big dream. I think McKenna was a big dreamer. I think he did a fair amount of delivering. And I think as a private citizen, he continues to do that. I would also say, however, that if you consider the significance of Richard Hatfield as Premier of New Brunswick, uh, here he was, uh, an Anglophone from Western New Brunswick, who opted to continue Louis Robichaud's uh, policies of equal opportunity. I think that makes Richard Hatfield very consequential. He's very controversial, and we all know that. But in terms of his, his, his consequential uh, importance, Socially in New Brunswick, I don't think can be overlooked. So I'm going to say, you know, McKenna and, and, and Hatfield, both very, very significant. In Nova Scotia, John Savage did an awful lot to change the political culture of the province. Uh, he overturned so many apple carts. And then, you know, he did something fairly rare in politics. He said, I'm going to get out now because I know that you blame me for all of this. So I'm going to go. Um, I think Savage was a very cons consequential premier. We know that McNeil is consequential, and we're going to see how consequential he was. We need a little more time, I think, to put Premier McNeil in into his proper context. Uh, I think Joe Giz was a very consequential premier in Prince Edward Island. Uh, he, um, you know, he 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 was a mighty roar from the East Coast. He was a brilliant, brilliant guy, and he had the ear of so many of the national leaders, uh, prime ministers, and other premiers. Um, you know, and that's not to take away anything else that he may have done, but I think when you look at his role in national affairs, Giz punched way above his weight. Newfoundland, I haven't quite uh, had the experience with all of their premiers, but Clyde Wells was extremely consequential, if for no reason other than Meech and what he did. Uh, with the Meech Lake Accord. And Danny Williams was very consequential as a dreamer of a big dream. Um, and the, but, but the jury is still out on his legacy as well. And, you know, journalism is the first draft of history. We probably need another generation before we can make a definitive judgment. So I hope I haven't watered down the answers too much, Don. Those are, those are great choices. And, and by the way, I think we pretty much aligned on at least four of those, which is well, not bad. I didn't intend to plagiarize if that was the case. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, so I think the Hatfield one is probably a little more controversial to the, to, to the listeners here, but I yeah. agree with you. I think the problem with Hatfield is in we don't have a proper reckoning of history in Atlantic Canada. There's not enough writing. Yeah. Uh, you know, as you said, after some time has passed and we've had a chance to for sober second thought, I think Hatfield did a lot more. And unfortunately, right now, he's kind of remembered just for that little for the scandal. The end, and also for yeah, the Bricklin and, and the scandal. Yeah. Uh, but well, maybe, Steve, you could, you could uh, when you retire, you could write a book and sort of revisit Hatfield. Well, you know, I, I think that there is a lot of work that needs to be done on Hatfield. And I think you've nailed all the reasons why there hasn't been more done on Richard Hatfield. But, I, you know, it would have been very, very easy. And I was only a kid in 1970 when Dick Hatfield got elected. But it would have been so easy for him to totally abandon the Robichaux vision. Uh, it would have been, not only would it have been easy, I think a lot of people expected that to happen. But Richard Hatfield was a true progressive. And he was surrounded by some very, very bright people 
who opted to take the, 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 the political road less traveled. And I'll tell you a quick story about Hatfield. I was in Karaket, New Brunswick, which of course is almost an exclusively Francophone community. Gorgeous place, by the way, highly recommend it. The seafood is fabulous there too. But I was there speaking with somebody about Richard Hatfield. And you know, Hatfield's French was dreadful. I mean, Diefenbaker's was probably perhaps as good. <laughs> uh, and Richard Hatfield was well loved in Acadia and he won Acadian seats. And I, I asked this gentleman, you know, what explained it? He said, it wasn't that Hatfield uh, came and spoke our language. It's that when he came, he tried to speak our language and he tried to understand. And I thought, you know, that really sums it up. And that's what he did when he became premier. He, he tried to speak the language and he tried to understand, but more importantly, he didn't turn his back on something that he easily could have abandoned. That's right. He doubled down, I think, on on the Robichaud reforms. I think that's he right did. too, Steve. And maybe there's a little bit of a lesson in there for the current uh, premier uh, of New Brunswick. Listen, we've as as Don said here, this this could go on forever, but we do sure. want to ask you about how you know you've interviewed all of the big business leaders across yeah. the region over your career. Is there one or two or three that uh, really impress you? You talked a little bit earlier about that, but are there one or two or three that uh, stand out? Yeah, there are. And I, you look, I, Ken Rowe impresses me. Ken Rowe is a self-made man. He came here with almost nothing, and he's now you know, a vastly uh, diversified um, billionaire, entrepreneur, industrialist, dreamer. Um, and, you know, again, I, I mentioned all of our great maritime families, and I think it's worth pointing out that they're not without controversy. You know, when you're as big as the Irvings or as big as the McCains or as big as the Sobeys, uh, sure, you, you're going to be controversial. But I will say all of those families could have taken the business anywhere, and they didn't. They stayed, and they've, they have done a, a great deal for our economy here. It has been, in some cases, not without a considerable price. I freely concede that. But I do think if you look at all of those, those families, they, they express their confidence in the Maritimes by staying. And, you know, uh, Scott McCain is an interesting guy at the moment. He's just gotten, you know, the, the Memorial Cup for St. John, where he owns a hockey team. And there is a guy, you know, Scott, there's nothing that says Scott McCain has to continue to, to, uh, to stay in the Maritimes and, and run a Quebec major junior hockey team in, in sort of his adopted town because he's a Florenceville guy. And, but, I mean, you know, he loves St. John, and he's, he's involved in the community there. And I, I have a high degree of respect for people who do things like that just because they can. Rob Irving's doing that, you know, in, in, in Moncton as well. So I, I, think that, uh, I think that all of those families deserve a great deal of credit while acknowledging that when you are as iconic and as large and as dominant as those families are, Sure, there are a lot of slings and arrows that come your way as well. So you talked earlier about shipbuilding as the sort of one big economic story that that you would focus on. Um, yep. We do wanted to ask you, we did want to ask you if there's another or any kind of major economic development story other than yeah. maybe shipbuilding that you've covered. Well, you know, energy is the other one. I mean, how many misfires have we had on, on energy? Uh, we've had some accomplishments too. Let's not forget that there was a lot of uh, natural gas come from offshore Nova Scotia. Um you know, and energy is, a, is going to, uh, it's an area where going forward, you know, obviously petroleum is going to be facing uh, some sort of a sunset, but there are other energy opportunities. Um, and, and again, you know, clearly politics has always intervened in many of our energy opportunities here. Um, many of them have been dirty energy, to be sure, or not as clean as, as solar or wind power would be. But we have had many opportunities in energy, and it seems to me that almost all of those opportunities have for one reason or another never really been completely fulfilled. So going forward, I, I'm not sure what our energy future is, but 
Um, one one does have to believe that we, with our natural advantages here, that, that we should have some some sort of a future there too. Well, you know, this is one of the things that we're trying to do on this podcast is to highlight the areas that are emerging. Uh, we, we talked, for instance, about the bioscience uh, cluster yep. BI, which has got a big boost uh, recently with the announcement of the vaccine manufacturing through BioVectra. Is yep. another one of our guests that will be on next week. Um, it's, uh, you know, there's lots of things happening in the blue economy, the ocean. Uh, yes, the very size, true. You know, so that, that's one of the advantages I'm speaking of, I, I yeah. think, Don, too, is, yeah. I mean, the, the ocean is something it's so vast that perhaps we've never even considered. Richard Branson once said to me that as vast as space is, he's more interested in the ocean. And, you know, he's not wrong about that. There's a universe on our own planet that we haven't explored. So, yeah. Uh, let's just change topics a little bit here. <clears throat> you've, you've interviewed a lot of uh, leading entertainers and musicians yep. in the region and beyond. This is a little bit of pop culture here a little bit. Uh, which, which one of those uh, interviews really stood out uh, for you? I was really uh, lucky early in my career to get a really nice sit-down interview, and I did a half-hour show with Anne Murray. I've always been a fan of Anne Murray. I think Anne Murray is not only one of the most talented people to come out of here. I mean, she sold 50, 60 million records. Uh, so that puts her in rarefied air. Uh, she's also smart. She's whip smart. And she's never forgotten where she came from. Uh, I think she, uh, getting an interview with her, and this was 30 years ago, was a big deal for me. And then a few years ago, I got an interview with McCartney, Paul McCartney, when he was in Prince Edward Island, proposing mm. the seal hunt. And that was kind of a thrill simply because, well, He's Paul McCartney, <laughs> uh, and that that was uh, that was a real thrill for me. And the, here's another one, and you guys may laugh at this, but you're Maritimers. I got to know Peter Ravine over the years. You know Ravine the Impossible. Yes. And uh, he was a master showman, and he was a hell of a nice guy. And I have to tell you this: he loved the Maritimes. Now he made his fortune here too, and, and, <laughs> and good for him. Uh, but he had a really wholesome family act. He brought it through here. He played every little town. Sometimes he was the biggest thing that happened all year. But he was a very nice, a very very nice guy, and it was a real uh, a real pleasure for me. I interviewed him a number of times over the years, and uh, I think he he was the real deal. And kind of a like kind of a local superstar, right? You know, right. everybody has seen Ravine, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, so Steve, you don't hold it against Anne Murray that one of her f most famous songs was kind of crapping on the on the on the TV news biz. Or, uh, well, uh, I don't. I, I actually, I actually don't think that it was dumping on it so much. I think it was a pretty good commentary. And you know, George, that was President George Bush's favorite song, "A Little Good News." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Uh, I, don't, I didn't take it personally. <laughs> Steve, you've had a long history of serving the community through volunteer work, uh, most notably by hosting Christmas Daddies and the IWK Telethon. Yeah. Uh, why, why have you put your focus there over the years? Uh, well, I mean, I was raised in an environment where, you, where we were simply expected to volunteer and be involved in the community, and it was kind of considered uh, one of the one of the requirements of citizenship, something we don't talk about much in this society. Uh, those are events, well, Christmas Daddies was started by the people who worked at this TV station, Jim Hill, Jack Dalton, and others in 1964. So we are the proprietors of it, and uh, it's done a lot of good for kids who really need it. Uh, the IWK, of course, we became involved with that uh, many, many years ago uh, by hosting the telethon. And I don't know. I, I think I've always believed, you know, if you look after your young, your youngest and your oldest, everybody else pretty well gets looked after, too. And I do think it begins with children. Look after children uh, in their health, their mental health. Um, 
that's that's the uh, the starting point to a healthy society. So I think Christmas Daddies and the IWK both are making significant contributions to the betterment of the lives of children. So I'm I'm for that. I'm also very much involved in in end of life. Um, advocacy. I, I was very privileged to be involved in the fundraising for the first residential hospice in New Brunswick. And I, I strongly, in St. John, I strongly believe in the residential hospice model. And again, I'm very happy to see that we now have a number of hospices popping up around the region. But, you know, um, a hospice, a residential hospice isn't where you go to die. It's where you go to live the last days of your life. But the emphasis is on the way you live, not in the way you die. And my own dad uh, had his last few days in Bobby's Hospice in St. John. And I think that, that that also speaks to my view that if you look after the eldest among us and the youngest among us, then everybody else kind of gets looked after well, too. So that, that's my philosophy on it. And I've seen it. I've seen it in action. And I think it works. I think that's well said. Are you going to continue your role with Christmas Daddies and the IWK Telethon? If if they'll have me in whatever role they would want me, yes. Although whoever is next in my uh, my position uh, you know, certainly will have an important role to play in, in those events as well. By most accounts, uh, they they have you retired, Steve. I, I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure that's not true. You're kind of, I'm pretty sure you're like me. Uh, you're going to be repurposing your life. So, yeah. what what are your plans going forward? Well, I am going to continue with CTV doing uh, commentaries and analysis and uh, and interviews. I'll be doing my year in interviews with the premiers, for example, this year. Uh, so I'm going to continue doing that kind of thing. It will be more toward the commentary and analysis side than the reporting side. And I'll be very clear about that. So that is that will be a departure, but I am going to be doing that. Uh, and I'll also be doing a, a little bit more um, public speaking when the opportunity presents itself. And the charity work is going to continue, too, because you can't retire from that. And I say that because you can't retire from citizenship. At least I don't think you can. You should keep doing anything you can to, to you know, to, to provide support for something that makes the community better. So, you know, you can be pretty busy just doing that if you want. And a lot of people, a lot of people have done that in their life. Look at Ruth Goldblum. I mean, mm-hmm. she had, she made a profession out of making a society a better place just by being the kind of person she was. And that's a quote from somebody whose name escapes me, but it's, it, it's a, it's a wonderful quote. She, she made society better just by being Ruth. So, you know, there's, there's a lesson in that for all of us. Steve, you've uh, authored two books. Um, you've got a lot of knowledge, a vast knowledge uh, captured inside your cranium. There, are you planning? Uh, are you planning on writing any more reflections or any more books uh, in the near uh, future? No plan to do so, but I wouldn't say no because you know. Well, there, there are a couple of words that you should use very, very seldom. One is always, and the other's never. So um, I don't think I'll use either of those words uh, on that question. I, I don't have a plan to do that. But I wouldn't preclude that I might. I think you should take up the Hatfield book idea. And if you do, you should listen to my podcast with Malcolm Brickland. He's 90-something years old, and he's still in the car business. And he, yeah, had I know. Some, he had some interesting reflections on those Hatfield years that I think a lot of people didn't didn't uh, recognize. Um, you know what? I am going to go listen to it because I think he's one of the most interesting figures of the uh, – well, probably of that period in New Brunswick, he was he was he, pretty much a, a mysterious figure too. You know, I mean, everybody knew his name, but man, he was he, he was well. No, he, I'm going to end it there. He was either the greatest con man of all time or one of the great visionaries of all time. <laughs> Sometimes it's hard to tell which is which. <laughs> well, by his own admission. <laughs> Finally, Steve, this has been a great uh, conversation. Uh, let's end by asking whether you feel optimistic or pessimistic about the future of the region. 
Oh, I'm very optimistic, Don. I'm optimistic because we have a long track record of of surviving and thriving. We we sometimes just need to remind ourselves what we're capable of. Um, You know, again, I'm not trying to suggest that we go back to the golden the golden uh, the golden days, but the fact is, uh, we have certain advantages here. We have tremendous human capital here. Uh, we have great ideas here, and we just need to rededicate ourselves to doing the things I think that we've done well in the past, and that is take on big projects, dream big dreams, and and be be quite fearless about it. But we do need to get a megaphone. We we really do, and a lot of that depends on getting, as you've said, more population so that we cannot be overlooked. You know, it would be nice to get some more seats in the House of Commons. The only way to do that would be to get some more population. In the meantime, the Senate could be a better voice for regional representation. Um, and too many people, I think, have been uh, willing to throw the Senate on the ash heap. But listen, there was a, there's lots wrong with it. But it is still the one place where we have, you know, 25 percent of the voices if we're willing to you know, make them heard. And our senators need to be aware that they have a duty to do that. Yeah, that's a great point. Well, Steve, uh, thank you very much for joining David and I on the Insights Podcast. Uh, you know, it's been a great conversation. I'm sure people will really enjoy uh, hearing you as an interviewee and not an interviewer. <laughs> Thanks, Don. Thanks, you, actually, you actually did a pretty good job uh, answering the questions, by the way. Thank you very much. And, well, and, and, and congratulations on really what has been a remarkable career. And I'm sure we're going to follow your, your future uh, endeavors as well closely. Kind words. Gentlemen, thank you. I enjoyed it. You've been listening to part two of Don and David's chat with Steve Murphy. Mark Legere helped produce this episode. Insights is part of the Huddle Podcast Network. You can follow the show and listen to past episodes on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And if you've enjoyed listening, please recommend the show to a friend. David and Don will be back again next week.